and welcome to yet another anime podcast. Just who the hell do I think I am? I'm Ninja Boy, and I'm yet another anime podcast host. So hope everyone's doing well on their fall 2020 anime season as it begins to wind down. Next week is, of course, Christmas, and the week after that, we'll have already escaped 2021. A bit of housekeeping, as you know, this show comes out on the first and third Fridays of each month. However, since the first Friday of January 2021 will in fact be New Year's Day, and we have five Fridays in January, I decided I'll actually be pushing back the release schedule one week, so on January 2021, we'll be coming out on the second and fourth Fridays, starting on January 8th. Uh, That episode is going to be our typical look back at the prior season of anime, the fall 2020 season, and then on the 22nd, we'll be talking about all the anime from the winter 2021 season that will have started by that point, which, if we had kept on the first and third schedule, wouldn't have all aired by the time that episode premiered. So it's going to be time to try to catch up on everything for the coming season. After that, we'll be back to the regular first and third Friday of each month on February 5th, uh, where we'll be looking at anime in the isekai genre, specifically because there are a lot of isekai shows uh, and sequels next season. In addition to all that, I'm actually going to be doing a special episode on the last week of the year after Christmas. Uh, I wanted to talk about my anime of the year discussion for 2020, but felt there wouldn't be enough time to do that justice on the January 8th episode looking back at just the winter 2020 season. Uh, So I'll be dropping a special episode sometime the last week of the year where I go over the best anime of each season this year before picking my anime of the year. Uh, I won't go super in-depth into the winter season since the shows may not have completed, but I'll have a generally good sense of what I'm looking for. Um, Anyway, so keep your eyes out on the feeds for that. Anyway, that's all future me's problems to worry about. For now, I want to do another episode looking at one series in-depth, similar to my Evangelion or Sword Art Online episodes so far. Um, and the series I want, I think, is most appropriate to talk about is the Juggernaut uh, that just began airing its final season, Attack on Titan, or Sengeki no Kyojin. Uh, strap in your 3D maneuvering gear and dedicate your hearts, because we're about to go in. Now, before I start in earnest, one heads up. I will be talking about both the manga and the anime, and I'll do my best to avoid major spoilers for both, but obviously I'm going to talk broad strokes around the shows in general, so if you want to go in completely blind, I'll just say go ahead and start watching or reading, whichever your preference is now. Uh, it's definitely hype for a reason and very much worth it. So, uh, Attack on Titan is the brainchild of mangaka Hajime Isayama. Uh, born in 1986 in Oyama, Japan, he started making manga to submit to contests while in high school, eventually moving to a man- manga program in university. In 2006, he submitted a one-shot version of Attack on Titan to a manga competition, which resulted, which received an award, which prompted him to move to Tokyo to work at an internet cafe to further pursue his career. Uh, this one-shot eventually would be included in future releases of Attack on Titan, um, and you know it, ver- it differs a lot between the original one-shot and the eventual serialized series. However, the core premise remains the same. Uh, Soldiers defending a bastion of humanity within some sort of wall against giant man-eating monsters known as titans, uh, including one soldier who ends up having the ability to turn into an intelligent version of a titan. Uh, These titans were actually inspired by his time working at the internet cafe uh, due to him feeling like he he wasn't able to really communicate with the drunk and belligerent uh, guests uh, at the the internet cafe. In addition, he was also influenced by his childhood of growing up on a farm, uh, you know, and and seeing the 
animals eat other animals, uh, kind of, you know, scaling that up to titans eating humans and having humans not be the top of the food chain, uh, necessarily. In fact, a lot of the landscape from Attack on Titan and of this one shot uh, come from his hometown of Oyama. In addition, if you look at uh, the one shot, uh, it's floating around online. If you wanted to go check it out, just Google it up. Uh, you'll see that you know the art style is actually pretty distinct from a lot of other Shonen series, um, especially at the time. A lot of Shonen series, especially those published in major magazines, had a lot of really clean lines and um, you know generally had like a, a pretty robust power or, or or magic system to some degree. Uh, this didn't really have that. There was uh, pretty much you know aside from the giant monsters floating around, a lot of relative. Uh, you know, uh, realism to it to some degree, and a lot of grittiness, um, especially with the sketchy style of his artwork, which, you know, while he refined it over the years, still remains a hallmark, I believe, of Isayama's style. Um, this is in contrast to, say, you know, the clean line work of a Tite Kubo or, um, or Itsuro Oda or Masashi Kishimoto, or, you know, even the kind of, you know, amateur style of, uh, you know, one from One Punch, the original One Punch Man. Uh, you know, I think that uh, now, after the success of this one shot, you know, he actually submitted his work for consideration to the Juggernaut Weekly Zone and Jump published by Suesa, which again is home of classics such as Naruto, One Piece, and Dragon Ball. After receiving editorial feedback that he needed to adjust his art and story to be suitable to Jump's offerings, um, you know, maybe in addition to making cleaner line work, maybe sifting to a more classically optimistic zone tropes, uh, Isayama instead opted to uh, keep his work as is and take it to the competitor, Kodansha. Um, after doing a couple of one-shots uh, in 2008 for Kodansha, Sigeki no Kyojin eventually received its serialization in Bisatsu Sonen Magazine, uh, Kodansha's monthly magazine starting in 2009. Now, before we get to the story itself, uh, you know, Attack on Titan obviously has been very well received. Um, even from its early days, in 2011, it received the 35th Kodansha Manga Award for Sonen Manga. It was nominated for the annual Manga Taisho Awards for Newcomer Manga in 2011, losing out to March Comes Like a Lion, and also nominated for the 16th annual Tezuka Award. It has also won the 2014 Harvey Award for the American Adaptation of a Foreign Work. Now, the manga itself has been running for the last 11 years, with 135 chapters thus far. Based on there being about 4 chapters per Tankobon volume, it is estimated that there are about 3 more chapters before the end of the series, putting it to end this coming March 2021. Now, as of December 2019, Attack on Titan has sold over 100 million volumes, putting it in the top 20 of manga series sold of all times. It's one of three manga, the other two being One Piece and Demon Slayer, uh, to have the first print of one of its volumes exceed 2 million copies. And for several years, starting in 2013, while One Piece was the juggernaut topping the charts, Attack on Titan was actually in second place for many, many years, and actually single-handedly boosted the revenue of its publisher, Kodansha. All right, so, you know, business stuff aside, what's the actual story of Attack on Titan? So basically, there's this guy, Aaron Yeager, and his family, who live alongside his best friends Armin Ardlet and Mikasa Ackerman, and they're in a world that is mostly medieval level of technology. Uh, the entirety of humanity that they know of live within three concentric walled areas, the, uh, with the areas closer to the center, right, so within the... the so if there are three circles like a target, the area within the, the, the innermost ring is, you know, the most well-off uh, financially where the royal family lives. Uh, and as you get closer to the outside, it gets more and more poor with Aaron and his family living essentially uh, just inside of the outermost wall. 
Now, outside of these walls are giant human mo human shaped monsters called titans. The titans seemingly have no intelligence and they're extremely difficult to kill. Uh, they end up regenerating if they receive any damage, with the exception of having the nape of their neck being cut deeply. After that, they seem to have an insatiable desire to eat humans. Uh, it's no surprise that human basically opts to just stay behind the walls. You know, there's no real way for them to fight back. Uh, the only weapons really that they that they have in any form of self-defense is a you know, in, it's seemingly anachronistic, right? In the medieval era world, they have these gas-powered um, three-D maneuvering gear that lets them Spider-Man around using grappling hooks. You know, either using against the wall or maybe towers to fly around and uh, you know use these razor sharp swords uh, that they keep uh, that are you know fairly brittle but very sharp to be able to cut into the back of the titans. Now, the only ones who are able to actually use these 3D maneuvering gears effectively is the military. And they're the ones in charge of defending humanity against any titans that are, you know, you know, able to get into the walls, which you know usually aren't many, or more relevantly, those who are outside of the wall. Um, if if anyone tries to go outside, uh, they are broken into three parts. Uh, the first one is the garrison regiment, who are meant to maintain the giant walls, which, by the way, are you know presumably the king has this power to raise these walls many, many, you know, over a century ago, who, who raised these walls using some mystical power. Um, there's also the uh, military police who maintain order in the capital in the center of the rings. And then the survey corps, who are the madmen who go beyond the walls willingly, uh, fighting off wild titans, trying to learn more about the nature of the titans and their powers and how to defeat them ultimately so that human humanity can go beyond the walls. Um, the theme of, you know, wanting to be a free a free bird uh, freed from its cage, you know, comes up a lot. Um, the latter division, of course, the Survey Corps, receive a much higher casual rate than normal due to the nature of their work. So that's the setting. Uh, life's all dandy and good until one day humanity receives a grim reminder. Sorry, I had to do that. Uh, anyway, uh, one day a giant colossal titan, even larger, so most titans are normally maybe 50 feet tall at most. Um, this colossal titan, over 200 feet tall, towers over uh, the the wall. He's, his head's able to peek over, and he's able to kick in essentially uh, the gateway, uh, opening the outer walls to allow other titans to come in, including an armored titan who seems impervious to any sort of damage, even from uh, you know the. Uh, the the 3D maneuvering gear and the swords. Um, Aaron and his family are forced to escape. His mother ends up getting killed by a titan, eaten by a titan. Uh, his dad dies mysteriously. They can't find him. So it's just him, Armin, and Mikasa. And you know most of the uh, most of the most of the outer ring are forced to escape into the second walls. Um, however, you know humanity in the Paris position. You know, a lot of the area in between the second and third wall was where a lot of the farmland was. So you know there's a lot of resources, uh, you know, being lost since the times, and it's no longer safe to farm out there. Uh, Aaron, you know, with his family dead, you know, swears revenge on the Titans and promises to slay them all one day. Um, and he eventually, you know, five years later on, uh, joins the military and eventually the Survey Corps in order to drive out the Titans from within the outermost wall and eventually and plug the wall to make it safe for humanity. And again, with the goal of going beyond the walls to find a way to defeat the titans once and for all. All right, I'll put a pause on the story there before, you know, and remember, we'll, we'll come back to that. But, you know, going back in time, I remember when the manga was first starting, right? So I've been reading manga 
gosh, I don't know, since probably at least 20 years at this point, uh, maybe a little bit less. Um, you know, when you know, I started reading manga online, and you know, most of the stuff I read was the Sonin Jump stuff, you know, Naruto, One Piece, Bleach, some older series like Death Note or, or Dragon Ball, and so on, Salmon King, Yu Yu Hakusho. Um, and the manga, you know, obviously, you know, started in 2009, which is just before I graduated high school. I'd heard of it as kind of like, you know, a couple years later, up and coming, right? Like, you know, you get these rumors of like, oh, there's this manga from this other magazine that's not Sonin Jump. Um, that, that's pretty good, right? The only other ones I can remember really that broke out were uh, Seven Deadly Sins, uh, which I've talked about in like another in the Netflix episode, uh, Fairy Tale, which was from another Kodansa Weekly magazine, uh, and then uh, Full Metal Alchemist, which is actually coming out of the Square Enix monthly magazine. Um, but you know, I was definitely focused on the Sonin Jump series, and uh, you know, though, and 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 most of the others were either weekly so, weekly. Uh, manga and those that fit the more classic, you know, power friendship type Sonin series. The closest analog to Attack on Titan would be Full Metal Alchemist, uh, which ended its run in 2010. So I think that may be one reason why Attack on Titan started to get, get more popular. Right, there was a absence of this kind of story where it's right at the border between a Sonin series meant for a younger audience and a Seinen, which covers more mature topics. Though Seinen manga obviously had other t- other stuff, um, you know, like classic series like uh, like Akira and so on um, that was definitely a lot more gritty um, even though if this one has perhaps a lot, little bit more gore um, but dealing with a lot more adult themes so it's almost like a bridge manga between the two um, I would also hypothesize that you know so I think you know the fact that there's no real clear uh, good guy or bad guy, you know, especially as the story goes on. Uh, there's a lot of moral gray zone and also a lot of a larger uh, mystery, right? It's not like, oh, power of enemy of the week, let's beat them up and get stronger, right? There's like a larger overarching story um, that you that's only hinted at the beginning but becomes more apparent as each chapter comes out. Now, you know, the other factor, I think, to Attack on Titan's success uh, and why it's such a big deal is its eventual anime adaptation in 2013. Uh, we'll get to production notes in a bit, but um, I think why it got so popular here in the West is, uh, at least in the West, is due to it being one of the first anime really licensed by the streaming site Crunchyroll and Funimation. Uh, Crunchyroll, at this point in time, had recently gone legit after being a pirate site for many years, uh, and one of the first it's one of the first major gets as a licensing company was the manga distribution for Kudansa manga, including Attack on Titan. So I'm guessing it was easy for them to get the licensing rights for Attack for the anime. And again, Attack on Titan is not the first streaming anime on Crunchyroll, but it definitely was one of their... It definitely helped with the exposure here, right? I talked about in the sort of online episode... At the time, streaming anime on like a streaming service was a relatively new thing. Uh, sort of online in the year before really was the first uh, to really hit mainstream success using this model as opposed to the you know fan dubbing model of of you know the big three uh, sort of jump series. And Attack on Titan kind of reinforced this. Now, I really think the real secret of Attack on Titan's success in the West was another show that wasn't an anime at all, actually. If you remember, back in 2013, that was the peak of Game of Thrones, uh, season 4 specifically. Now, Game of Thrones may be a cultural joke nowadays with how it ended in season 8, but still, think back to 2013, when Game of Thrones' hype was almost at its all-time high, uh, and in a favorable way, right? And Attack on Titan received a lot of comparisons from mainstream media as being the Game of Thrones of anime, you know. Uh, on the surface, you know, there's a lot to draw in. Both are medieval-level worlds filled with humans who are fighting against a larger inhuman threat, such as the White Walkers or the Titans. Uh, and there 
really intergroup politics, right? There's a conflict between the different houses in Game of Thrones and then conflict between the different branches of the military. And there's a larger mystery about this show, right? Like, who are the Titans? Where do they come from? How can we defeat them? Or the backstory of the main characters, which is kind of like revealed slowly in Game of Thrones and kind of the nature of the political shape of the world. And of course, you know, obviously the fact that both shows uh, were seemingly willing to kill off supposedly main characters uh, and main members of its cast in a brutal, gory fashion. So, you know, while Game of Thrones as an HBO show did not say shy away, and I think another thing is that while HBO is a show, as a Game of Thrones as an HBO show did not shy away from using sex and nudity as a draw, Attack on Titan, you know, compared to other anime, uh, really did the opposite. I mean, if you look at Sword Art Online even, right, like at the end, uh, and there were definitely some problematic points, especially in the first season uh, that, you know, sexualized uh, some of the characters. That didn't really happen in Attack on Titan. It was very stale and stagnant to some degree um and a lot not a lot of fan service which you know again differentiates attack on titan from other anime and frankly the sometimes somewhat unfounded but also not entirely untrue um reputation that anime has received for being full of weird fetishes and fan service where it wasn't quite appropriate lacking these elements made attack on titan an easy recommendation to a friend which may be a weird thing here in the states right like the fact that we were so puritanical when it comes to sex but you know gung-ho about oh yeah violence totally cool have as much violence as you want maybe helped here in the sex as opposed to japan where sex is like a lot more of a common uh trope and topic for for their media Anyway, this led to Attack on Titan becoming a gateway anime for them around this time, uh, which, again, was also due to the ease of access via streaming. So, moving on to the anime. The first and subsequent two seasons uh, would be produced by Studio Wit uh, and directed by Tetsuro Araki, who also directed the classic anime, which also had widespread appeal, uh, Death Note. The first season of 25 episodes would air from April through September 2013. After a four-year delay, the second season would return in 2017 for 12 episodes. And then the third season would return in 2018 and 2019, split into two cores. 12 episodes in 2018 from June through October, and then the final 10 from April through July 2019. That brings us to the final season with Sifted Studios from Wit Studio to Studio Mappa, one of my favorite studios, uh, with Jun Susido taking over as chief director. His most notable credit prior to this is the Hajime no Ippo boxing television series from 2013. Uh, the episode premiered two Sundays ago. Uh, episode 3 should be premiering later this weekend. Uh, this episode comes out and will continue on for 16 episodes total, ending in March 2021. Coincidentally, or more likely deliberately planned, uh, to coincide with the end of the manga. Some other notable credits on the production team, uh, the writer for the Wit Studio stewardship of the series was Yasuko Kobayashi, who previously worked on Death Note alongside Araki, though not as lead writer, uh, Claymore, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, Kakiguri, and Dororo. And of course, it's also incredibly hard to talk about the appeal of Attack on Titan without mentioning Hiroyuki Sawano, the composer uh, who's been present for every season, including the current one. Uh, his epic musical scores have graced many anime in addition to Attack on Titan, such as Mobile Suit Gundam Unicorn, Blue Exorcist, Kill the Kill, Deadly Seven, Seven Deadly Sins, and Promare. Uh, he even has a musical technique colloquially named after him, the signature Sawano Drop, uh, which is a lyrical drop at a climactic moment of action during a scene perfectly timed to evoke maximum motion uh, in an epic manner. 
All right, so production notes aside and returning to the story, uh, we'll get into spoiler territory for the first half of the first season of the anime or about the first 15 chapters or so of the manga. So, five years after they were made refugees, as we said, Aaron, Mikasa, and Armin signed up to join the 104th Cadet Corps, essentially boot camp, uh, where they learned how to use the 3D maneuver gear. After expanding the cast to te- other members of the 104th, such as John, Sasha, Berthold, Reiner, Annie, Marco, Connie, Krista, and Yimmer, among others, uh, they were deployed to the city of Trost, just inside the second of the three walls, uh, which is now the outer perimeter for humanity. And who would sew up but that same colossal titan all those years ago? And so the titan kicks a hole in the wall and lets other titans in. Uh, now, given the tools to be able to try and get his revenge, Aaron and his squad proceeds to leap into action to prevent humanity, only for Aaron to probably be eaten by a titan as he saves Armin from dying. Cut to black, will credits, that's the show, and that's exactly why people were like, oh my gosh, this is like Game of Thrones, they're killing off the main character in like the third or fourth episode or something. Well, not quite. So, a couple of episodes later, you know, Armin's escaped and he regroups with Mikasa and their cadet mates and they come across a mysterious titan who seemingly is behaving differently. Uh, He doesn't seem to have any desire to eat humans and he tactically fights against other titans by hitting their weak points. Um, After using that titan to fight back, uh, it ends up collapsing and from its weak point at the back of its neck emerges an unconscious Eren. He's actually grown his back, his arm and leg that got bitten off by the titan that ate him. Uh, it's revealed via a flashback that Aaron, as he was dying in the stomach, basically got so angry, he transformed into a titan himself that he could control. How curious. Of course, things ramp up from here as other military soldiers see this and, not being friends with Aaron, turn their guns on him and his friends. Armin is able to use his quick thinking to essentially stall long enough for the military commander, Dot Pixis, to arrive and he, who ends up striking a deal with Aaron that they won't kill him immediately if he's able to use his titan powers to plug the hole in the wall to prevent other titans from entering, uh, leading to another case where all of humanity has to seek refuge inside the innermost ring. Uh, so Aaron turns into a titan, he carries the giant boulders, and supported by other members of the survey corps, including humanity's number one soldier, Captain Levi, as well as Commander Aaron Smith, uh, ends up plugging the hole. They're successful, but that's just the beginning of the story, right? More and more questions have arisen. Why is Aaron, of all people, if he hates titans so much, suddenly able to transform into a titan? Can anyone else turn into a titan? Why did the colossal titan appear out of nowhere five years later? especially where Eren happened to be. Uh, Will Eren be able to use his titan powers to get revenge he seeks on other titans and retake the third wall, or will they fail? Will they find out the nature of titans in the end? Key to all this is a lost memory that resurfaces when he turns into a titan of his father. It turns out that on the day that the walls fell, uh, he ended up, his father uh, told him to seek out answers to any questions he may have by going to the family basement. Of course, that house that he grew up in is now in Titan territory, and so it'll be up to him and the rest of the survey corps to push out to the outer wall, reclaim the humanity's uh, barrier, uh, and find that house and find the answers they seek. Now again, this all only covers the first 13 episodes of the first season out of the approximately 60 that have aired so far. 
and so much more happens. And it, you know, it never quite loses, the show never quite loses the dark atmosphere around death is a possibility at any time. There's going to be lots more deaths in the series, just, just spoilers, right? Um, it's frankly kind of, but uh, on the other hand, it's the kind of series where it kind of changes genre over time, especially considering the arc. Um, you know, more and more twists are revealed for that overall mystery, but the way they go about trying to find these changes, right? Like, you know, first off, one genre I like to liken Attack on Titan to is a mecha anime, right? Uh, to some degree. You know, Aaron's last name is Jaeger, which is the same name as the giant robots from Pacific Rim. Frankly, he's basically a pilot of his own mech, just that the mech happens to be made out of flesh and blood. And not to give you know, not to give too many spoilers, but it is hinted that you know the Colossal Titan and the Armor Titan also have their own pilots, and who those pilots are is just part of the mystery. Aside from that, you know the high flying action enabled by the three D maneuvering gear, you know, which again definitely appeals to the visual appeal of the show. Um, you know, th- uh, the combat you know is is less about being a badass and you know mowing down titans endlessly unless you're uh, Captain Levi but frankly it's about tactics and using the smarts in the David versus Goliath manner which is you know a different kind of combat system which I think is really engaging uh, and then you know as the series goes on there's there are points where there's less you know titan co- combat going on and it gets into maybe some human versus human uh, con- uh, combat, as I, you know, noted that you know there ends up being conflict between the different branches of the military. You know, for example, what do you do with Aaron? Some pe- some parts of the military don't want him to stay alive, and the, some people want to use him, right? So, um, there's you know political intrigue that comes into play, thriller elements. There's a the second season digs into a cult of the wall, people who worship uh, the walls themselves, and you know they can't be built by human hands. It has to be some otherworldly, godly thing, and they worship that. And in some ways, some people worship the titans themselves. Right, um, you know the nature of the Titans just gets more and more mysterious. Titan fanatic Hanze of the uh, Survey Corps, um, as well as you know another special Titan, the speaking monkey-like Beast Titan with a hell of a baseball pitch. You know, cut, like make you question what is a Titan. And then the third season, that's even more ramped up. You know, again with the human versus human conflict versus human versus Titan combat. But you know, also then that that's just more of this Game of Thrones political intrigue comparison. But then in the second half, it just goes back to its roots of you know human versus Titan combat in like an epic epic uh, combat. It's probably my favorite part of the series, you know, entirely. Now, on top of you know switching genres that you know it fits the, uh, whilst fitting the story well, perhaps the most impressive part that you know. It looks like all of the twists and turns have been planned out in advance, right? Um, there are cases where if you, after going back and watching the latest episode or reading the latest chapter, if you go back, you know, dozens, even hundreds chapters in the past, even going back to the very first episode, you can see that some of the reveals that Isayama has in the latest chapters were foreshadowed, you know, maybe you don't have all the context at the time, but were foreshadowed years in advance uh, through these earlier chapters. So he knows what he did. There's a vision that he has it's not a case where you know fairy tale for example or seven deadly sins the story kind of keeps on getting extended there's a concrete story he wants to tell with a twist specifically he already has planned out and that's exactly driving everything i think that really well crafted interconnected story which really again is really something you only see something on the scale of one piece is just super impressive now that's the most impressive part. The part that blows my mind the most is the fact that, you know, everything I've described up to this point, you know, that's covered the first three anime seasons and the first 90 chapters of the manga, 
that's just preamble, basically. The, the real true conflict of the show only makes itself apparent about 90 chapters in and about, you know, 60 episodes in, which, granted, is a lot, but, you know, it it ramps up to an entirely different scale and different set of enemies. And Isayama the Madman is able to still make it feel like one cohesive story that makes sense. Again, no spoilers, but a lot of the similar things I mentioned, sifting genres, going between political intrigue and action and combat, mixed with tactical and strategic fighting, are present just scaled up for the new enemy. I honestly don't know how he's done it. You know, it makes me feel, again, similar to a Full Metal Alchemist, where the initially relatively simple premise, right, of you know, either basic alchemy and, and trying to find the Philosopher's Stone or trying to find out the who the who where, where the Titans come from and what they are and why Eren can turn into a into a Titan ends up giving way to a much larger conspiracy, right? That's partly by, from the military, partly from those in power. Um, another comparable story I can think of is Gurren Lagann, my all-time favorite uh, anime, which starts off as just a story of drilling underground to literally throwing galaxies at it. So that's just kind of like, this, not quite the same scale of Rampa, but, the, the, but it feels that epic. Now, you know, apparently based on the pacing we've seen so far, we can expect this final season of anime to adapt probably through about chapter 122 out of the estimated 138 chapters. Uh, we don't have confirmation yet on how that final series of chapters uh, will be adapted if this series in fact does end early. Um, you know, and if it also if this season is supposedly the final the final season, quote unquote. Uh, perhaps based off of the success of the Kimetsu no Yaiba anime, movie recently, uh, they may be playing a final movie to wrap up all of the story in a really cinematic fashion, which as a manga reader, you know, I would be completely be in favor of just given all the crazy shit that's going down. Now, obviously I've been singing a lot of Attack on Titan's praises pretty much nonstop this episode. Is there any flaws to the show? Of course, you know, no show is completely perfect. Uh, in terms of the anime, while the first half of the first season is pretty good at pacing and laying the foundational groundwork for the rest of the show and really hooking you into that underlying mystery, I do have to say that the second half uh, of the first season kind of drags a bit from a pacing perspective. Uh, it is a rough situation where they either had to either have a slower-paced second half to get to a solid endpoint, uh, or they could have tried to pace it too fast to get to the next logical endpoint. But, you know, it was frankly something somewhat off-putting when I was first watching it. Um, and I think part of the reason that maybe, you know, Attack on Titan, there haven't been many imitators. And maybe that's partly because, you know, there frankly isn't a lot of manga source material to adapt that kind of is in the same vein. Uh, so, you know, Isayama's, again, one of a kind when it comes to making this kind of story. This is literally his debut work, mind. Um, but I think the other part is that there was unfortunately a pretty long hiatus, about four years, from 2013 to 20, uh, 2017, when the second season came out. And even then, we only got 12 episodes. Compare that to, say, the other major streaming success of 2012-2013, which was sold out online, that had 24, 25 episodes in its uh, first season and then followed up shortly after uh, by Sword Art Online Season 2 in 2014, only two years later, which is, you know, half the time. So I really think, you know, that might be why Attack on Titan hasn't quite had as much hype. And a lot of the hype now comes from people who have either stuck with it or maybe people who remember that it was a great first season um, and hopefully, you know, are coming back to it eventually now that they know it's, it's going to wrap up completely. Now, I'll also say, you know, going back to what I think the flaws of the season are, of the show are, I think the supporting cast of Attack on Titan are pretty awesome, right? Sasa is really great. Um, in particular, is one of my favorite characters. Um, Levi obviously has, like, a lot of fangirls going for him. 
But, you know, I think the main characters are kind of weak, right? Like Mikasa is her main defining trait is she really loves Eren. Armin is granted, granted a little bit better, but he also is a bit, uh, you know, he, he tends to be not quite have, be as proactive, especially in recent series. So he does have great character also as well. Eren in particular, I think is frankly my least favorite character in the series, um, as, as, at least in the first half, right? Um, you know, like until that turning point of chapter 90 where Eren at the first half is a terrible combination of being pretty one-dimensional and frankly kind of dumb, right? He's just going pretty much on pure rage. Uh, maybe I'm not just remembering him well, but he's pretty much straight up carried by the more competent members of the survey corps around him. Like he's not even able to get the kills on other titans that he wants to um, using the 3D maneuvering gear. He, and, you know, his only redeeming quality is his stubbornness, which, you know, the fact that like, he, it's kind of a joke, but like from the first season, he was just characterized as just yelling about how he hates titans, he's going to kill all the titans, titans are going to die before him. And he doesn't really deliver the result. And that's just frankly really frustrating. And if that's the main character, right? Again, his character really does take a shift in the second half of the series after chapter 90. Um, but, you know, for the anime watchers, that, that was definitely a turnoff for me. Um, another, I won't call it an issue. I think one difference Attack on Titan has from other anime of this scale, you know, the bulk of the appeal, I think, comes from the plot twist that Isayama has planned out in a very unique and brilliant way. That in itself isn't bad, but I think what makes it so really transcendent is having a strong thematic message and element and a perspective and a point of view. You know, uh, Gurren Lagann is all about, like, you know, the power of willpower and pushing through and, you know, humanity will always find a way and it's unstoppable, right? Something like that. Um Full Metal Alchemist is about, you know, the bonds of, of the people that, that you come up with and the relationships you, you have with others and the power that has, right? There is moral gray there, but it's still very clear on that particular thematic messaging. Frankly, I think the Attack on Titan's big takeaway is kind of muddled. Um, you know, Cerdo's stuff about moral grayness of humanity and the importance of the freedom of choice, but those, it almost feels as if those are accidental messages that are germinated on their own as opposed to something placed there by Isayama. And, you know, I don't think that's entirely unintentional, right? Uh, you know, from other articles I've read, you know, what he on what he's a fan of, you know, he's, uh, instead of performing stories that are, you know, have direct answers that tell you what you should think and feel, you know, even if maybe not explicitly, but like even through the, sub, through the subtext, he doesn't really pass judgment on whether or not something is right or wrong, right? Um, and, you know, I think that basically leaves it up to interpreting, which, again, could be a benefit, right? If you can take away whatever, like, another mark of a good work is you can take away what you feel is great from the work and what it's saying to you and make it very personal. I mean, you know, as I've seen a lot of think pieces online about Attack on Titan, how, you know, some people, you know, especially those on the left and more liberal, see a lot of the portrayal, especially of stuff in the second half of the show, um, as, you know, being stuff speaking out against colonialism and, uh, you know, segregation and so on, right? But then, you know, there are also people who take the exact same material uh, from the alt-right and see it as something that's supporting their perspective, right? And, and, and I think that's really... I, on one hand, that's fascinating that this show can be reflective to so many people. And maybe that, that explains why there's so much widespread appeal across different groups, right? It's not like, oh, this is a very clearly one message that I'm not into. I'm not going to be a fan of this show. The fact that this is almost a blank slate you can put it yourself into, I think, is an interesting premise. But also, 
you know, the fact that it doesn't have like a, a strong takeaway, I guess maybe I that's the kind of story that I'm personally uh, looking for. Um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of nihilism in here that I that I see as well. Um, but you know, I think another thing that maybe is my favorite thing about the show, even though it definitely again explains its appeal, is to some degree it's misery porn, right? Like it's basically you know there are these terrible things happening to these people. Let's watch how miserable their lives end up being and how much mind break that they end up going through when they realize the fate of their world, right? There's no real hopeful, and not all media should be hopeful. Not all media needs to be have a happy positive ending, right? Um, maybe that's not, that's not my favorite type of media out there, but you know, I, I definitely, on the other hand, misery porn does sell to some degree, right? It's not seeing not if our favorite characters will die, but rather when they die and how they will die is the appeal of the show. Um, that that show goes off of, I think, that visual appeal um, as much and maybe more so than it does whatever cognitive, you know, picking apart what is the meaning behind the show. Um not that there are, you know, that there are no puzzle pieces to fit together, right? Far from it. I think there are so many threads going on in interconnect, like I mentioned, like the things that are foreshadowed months and years in advance that we're trying to piece together, like, oh, he was saying this. Maybe that causes us to just turn our brains off and just enjoy the the high-flying action uh, in the visual sense. Um, and again, in that sense, I think the Game of Thrones comparison is somewhat apt. Though again, I'm also hoping that, you know, I don't think the plot or conclusion are, are bad, as bad as Game of Thrones concluded. I'm definitely hoping that Attack on Titan does not end the same way Season 8 does. Uh, anyway, before I draw any more online hate for my takes on Attack on Titan, I again have to say that I fully endorse that the execute that the that every, that the show is definitely worth watching and getting invested in. Um, and you know, to close out, I kind of also want to talk about you know, there's more than just the manga and the main anime to follow. You know, uh, th- for one, there were three OVA episodes. One of them focusing on a lone member of the Survey Corps from years ago, talking about their encounter with some Titans. The other two focusing on the 104th Cadet Squad, a little bit more slice of life. Uh, ex- experience. There are also a number of Flash animated gag sorts featuring chibi versions of characters that were released on the DVD Blu-ray release. Not to mention there are a bunch of compilation films that are you know, basically just the anime episodes just compiled together as a recap if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, in addition, there are a number of light novel spinoffs. Uh, I haven't read any of these, to be clear, but they are there. Um, they are Before the Fall, a story set 70 years prior to the events of the anime that expands on the world. Uh, Harsh Mistress of the City, uh, set in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the outermost wall, kind of that five-year time gap period. Uh, Lost Girls, a series of short stories expanding on some of the 104th Cadet Girls. And Garrison Girl, uh, written by an American writer expanding on the world further. Before the Fall and Lost Girls received manga adaptations, and there's also a light novel, Attack on Titan No No Regrets, focusing on Levi uh, prior to his days in the Survey Corps that got adapted to a manga as well. Uh, probably my favorite spin-offs are the uh, Chibi ones. Uh, while I haven't read Spoof of Titan, a four-coma uh, format comic, I have checked out the Attack on Titan Junior High. It's basically telling the story of Attack on Titan, but in an alternate universe, uh, where everyone are junior high school students uh, in modern-day Japan as Class 104. Uh, the Colossal Titan is not an enemy of humanity, but rather the principal of the high school, and Aaron's grudge against the Titans is not due to them killing uh, his family, but rather because his the principal ate his cheeseburger lunch yeah uh, frankly it's not that great if you haven't watched the series or read the original manga but if you have they parody elements of the show so well in this alternate universe it's pretty hilarious they adapt uh iconic wartime sequences for a junior high setting and you know there were even points where there was stuff from the manga that they parodied that had not yet 
been adapted in the anime. That was pretty great. Um, so definitely watch and read the anime manga. And if you want more, check out Attack on High School Junior High. Um, another spinoff I unfortunately have seen uh, is the live-action films of Attack on Titan. Frankly, they're not very good at all. They completely butcher the stories, trying to condense it down to not one uh, movie, two-hour two runtime, but you know, two two-hour runtime movies. Uh, and they just completely butcher it, I guess partly to fit the story. You can't fit the entire series of Attack on Titan down to just two movies. But, I mean, frankly, most Japanese live-action anim- adaptations of manga aren't that great, exception being the Ryoni Kenshin movie. So, you know, I swear, I only watched them to vote with my dollars to tell Funimation and the movie industry I wanted to see more anime movies here in the States. Avoid this one, for sure. You know, the only other Attack on Titan media I can also speak on is the video game. Uh, ironically enough, it's not the official video game. There's definitely more than a few of those, but I've never played any of those. Uh, what I'm talking about is a fan-made tribute game back when the first season of the anime was still airing. It was produced by a Chinese indie developer named Feng Li and apparently is still accessible, though not on Google Chrome. Um, I definitely remember spending lots of time playing this instead of playing, doing my homework in college and watching some of my favorite YouTubers try to play this game and recreate events from the anime. I'll include a link to this in the show notes. In any case, you know, I think that's a pretty comprehensive look on Attack on Titan as a franchise, um, aside from the theme park ride at Universal Japan, which obviously I can't comment on. Um, obviously, you know, I can't give a final score for the series overall yet since it hasn't completed, uh, but as an anime watcher and as a manga reader, I gave the first season a 3 out of 5. Uh, the second season of the first half of season 3, and the first half of season 3, a 4 out of 5, and then the final half of season 3, a 5 out of 5, mostly because it adapts my favorite arc perfectly. Uh, again, we have yet to see if the anime is likely able to adapt the manga well and what will happen to the final chapters if it's not able to complete it all here. But unless something goes terribly wrong with Studio Mappa, uh, I'm, I would say as of right now, Attack on Titan sits as a 4 out of 5 for me. Uh, the strength of the source material is just that good. Anyway, go check it out. And remember, Sasageyo. Uh, in any case, that's a wrap on this episode of Yet Another Anime Podcast. Uh, what are your thoughts on Attack on Titan? Uh, let me know on Twitter at YetAnoAnimePod or via email at YetAnotherAnimePodcast at gmail.com. You can follow my My Anime list at NinjaBoy333, boy with an I. A link to that as well as to our iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play so- listings uh, will be in the show notes. If you can please leave a review on those or on Podchaser.com, it really helps, or share with a friend. Uh, intro and outro music is provided by Suichi Sakagami at Tandes.com. Editing production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this episode. Uh, remember, full episodes return in January when we look at the fall anime season in retrospect. Um, though, again, you will get a sneak preview of that when I release my special episode later this month, not exactly sure when, looking back at 2020 as a year and as I pick my favorite anime of the year. Until then, though, see you, Space Cowboy. Bang. <laughs>